Hey guys, I am very excited about our episode that we had today. I had a conversation with Dr. Lena Haji, who was a forensic psychologist the other day. Great conversation. So let me give her a little bit of an introduction and then we'll kind of jump on into the conversation we had. Dr. Lena Haji is a licensed clinical psychologist and licensed mental health counselor specializing in psychodiagnostic assessment, forensic assessment, dual diagnosis, serious and persistent mental illness, depression, anxiety, personality disorders, and substance abuse treatment. Dr. Haji completed a master's degree in forensic psychology at John Jay College of Criminal Justice, a master's degree in clinical psychology from Albizu University, and a doctorate in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis from Albizu University. Her training includes inpatient and outpatient settings, private forensic practice, and an APA-accredited pre-doctoral internship. She was trained at the master's and doctoral level in the assessment and treatment of individuals ranging from mild psychiatric symptoms to those with serious and persistent mental illness, duly diagnosed patients, as well as personality disorder patients and psychopathy. Her clinical experience over the last 20 years includes working with mentally ill and duly diagnosed adults in inpatient and outpatient settings, including correctional facilities, substance abuse rehabilitation centers, outpatient clinics, psychiatric hospitals, and private practice in four states, New York, New Jersey, California, and Florida. In addition, she has supervised master's level clinicians, postdoctoral residents, and served as a clinical director for a 500 patient maximum security correctional facility. Her ultimate goal as a psychologist, regardless of population, is to accurately diagnose and identify patient strengths and areas for growth in order to better individualize treatment needs and goals. Whew. All right. So I'm, I'm going to do a little transition kind of stuff. We'll get into our conversation. I think you guys will really enjoy it. We really talk about uh, psychopathy, the whole fascination with serial killers, working with this population, and all the good stuff. All right, so enjoy. Welcome back to the show. I have Dr. Lena Haji here with me. She is a forensic psychologist. Um, I will have done your introduction, your proper introduction, um, but I'll let you, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself in regards to like what you do, uh, your professional background, and then we'll go from there. Okay, a little bit about myself. Um, I am French, Indian, and Tanzanian, born in Switzerland and raised in New York. Quiz on that Oh my later. goodness. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, my parents worked for, for the United Nations. That's how that happened. And so, um, yeah, raised in New York. And then uh, education-wise, I did my, I went a little nuts with school. I won't talk about school loans. Um, my first master's at John Jay uh, College of Criminal Justice, which is like the forensic mecca. I did a master's in forensic psychology. Then I did a master's in clinical psychology. And then I did a doctorate in clinical psychology with a forensic emphasis. And so for the last 20 years, I've been working mostly with um, criminals and in prisons and forensic hospitals and a little bit of rehab places, private practice, dual diagnosis, outpatient clinics, a little bit of everything, but mostly corrections, mostly corrections. That's amazing, right? Um, So I know we touched on your like your cultural background, personal background a little bit. So you've been a little bit of mishmash, but I think the most important thing is like we were talking a little bit before New Yorkers and New Yorkers are the melting pot of the world, right? Thank you for pointing that out because you know how New Yorkers are. They have to tell you they're New Yorkers forever. Yeah. 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 So it's like, it's, it's like badge of honor. Um, even though I haven't lived there since 2009. Uh, yeah, I love, I, I loved that, that I grew up in New York. Um, I really didn't know that racism existed till I left New York and then it just kind of hit me in the face. Um, you know, you grow up in New York and your friends are, Chinese, black, white, Jewish, and you just think kumbaya, we are the world humans. And then you leave New York and you're like, oh God, this isn't how it really is. Um, So in a way I feel like uh, it was great, but it was almost uh, not a good representation of how it is anywhere else. And I learned that lesson the hard way, but New York was New York was great, and you you have no choice to get along with people who you would normally not get along with because you're smushed, you're literally smushed together. And so, uh, yeah, all socioeconomic classes, all ethnicities, all religions, all backgrounds. It's awesome. Yeah, and I think it's like you're you're saying that like New Yorkers have a lot of pride in being a New Yorker. When I had to get my Virginia driver's license, and they punched the void card hole or 
put a void punch through my New York driver's license, it was like a, a hole in my heart I was stabbed yeah. at that moment. It was terrible. Yeah, it, no, it, it hurt. I When I moved here to do my doctorate in, to Miami, um, I kept my New York plates for two and a half years. Apparently that's really illegal. Super illegal. Uh, yeah, super illegal. Um, it wasn't until I was pulled over and the cop was like, dude, it's it's been two and a half years that I was like, you know, I gave him at the DMV like, oh, it was hard. Yeah, I guess. Sim similar story. So <laughs> pulled over in Virginia, hospital scrubs. I was like, oh, I, I don't live. And I was like, damn it, I'm stuck. And then he's like, you got to get it. You got to get your Virginia license. And they, you know, put a punch hole in my heart. So I get it. I we had so I was before we started, um, you know, when I was like, oh, I'm going to talk with Dr. Haji and we're going to have a forensic psychologist. All these questions started coming in. But I was like, let me ask the most important question for New Yorker. Yankees or Mets? I hate baseball. But okay. <laughs> but I lived in the Bronx for seven years. So Yankee. Oh, Mets. I'm oh, Mets really? I mean, were you yeah. like I'm older? I'm probably older than you. So Daryl Strawberry kind of. Um, yeah. Broke my Doc heart. and Daryl. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. So what is a forensic psychologist to forensic psychology? And what is not forensic psychologist or psychology? Because I think there's people like have this idea of it from watching TV shows and movies. And they're like, oh, this is going to be what it is. But, but what do you do? What is the field? So I think when people hear the word forensic, they think like CSI. They think blood and DNA and bodies and crime scenes, and that has zero to do with forensic psychology. Forensic psychology really is the interconnection between clinical psychology and the legal system. And so it's uh, largely kind of working with the criminal population um, within the legal system and applying the science of clinical psychology to answer a legal question. So we do things like competency to stand trial, not guilty by reason of insanity, violence risk assessments, sex offender risk assessments, uh, mitigation stuff, juvenile evaluations. Um, and it's a relatively new field, newish in the last you know couple of decades because um, people really didn't understand that a lot of mentally ill people are in the criminal justice system, especially after deinstitutionalization in the 70s, where jails and prisons became the new psych hospitals. So um, there's a huge need for us to be there and be like, whoa, hold on, this, this, this guy's schizophrenic and he's psychotic and he can't be in prison, this is not okay. So that's the gist of forensic psychology. It's not blood and DNA, it's not CSI. That's forensic science. Yeah, I think that's super important because everyone is like, oh, you're the guys who go out to the crime scenes and then you like, you you make this image of what the murder scene was and that's a forensic psychologist. It's like, no, 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 that's not how it goes. It's, yeah. and it's a lot of writing, right? Oh, it's so much writing. Um, there is a subsection of forensic psychology where um, some forensic psychologists do profiler work, so FBI profilers. Um, that I, I don't do that, but I have taken a class in that. It's fascinating. So that you really will have, you know, the FBI forensic psychologists come in and assess a crime scene and figure out the victim and the method of murder and what weapon was used. And they have it's it's mind blowing. Researchers, God bless researchers. I I can't do research. I just I I'm. So they'll take all that data and then they'll put it into like a system which will literally spit out a profile of the offender. Um, again, I don't do that work, but that that is a sub part of forensic psychology. So that's a little bit more, you know, Mindhunter-ish. Um, yeah. What drew you to it? Because I think when we talk about criminals and crime and jail and murder and sex offenders and all that stuff, people are repulsed but they're also drawn to it. You know, you know, we, we have, it's on the shows, there's millions of shows. What drew you to it, to doing it? Like, this is what I want to do, and this is what my career is going to be. So I always knew I wanted to be a psychologist by the age of nine. Um, little self-disclosure, I was diagnosed with major depression when I was nine, which is... Uh, you know, I, I remember being nine years old and feeling, you know, I didn't know what death was or suicide was per se, but I remember thinking I don't want to be here. 
Um, and you know, my parents, my poor parents took me to every single medical doctor you possibly could take me to. And finally I met with a woman who had for the first time started asking me questions that no other doctor had asked me. And I felt comfortable and heard, and it's, it sounds like a very cliche story, but, um, and then when I left, I asked my mother, what, what was that? And she said, that's a psychologist. And I was like, sold, that's, that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm doing. Um, and then throughout my schooling, I remember I went to Lehman College in the Bronx. Um, yeah, my Indian father was not happy about that, you know, because it was an Ivy League. So, uh, but, um, yeah, we, we yeah, yeah, life, yeah. So. yeah, 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 it's like uh, all your cousins are going to Stanford and Brown and you're going to Lehman in the Bronx. I was like, okay, well. so, and this like gorgeous Barbie looking, very uh, presentable, attractive woman walks in. It was a dumbed down forensic psychology class. It was called like psychology and the law. And she comes in and she has this presence and this confidence. And she starts talking about how she works with serial killers and murderers and pedophiles. And I was like, oh, you know, I had this image in my head that that was only like old white men. Um, and she changed that narrative for me. And I, that was my second time of like sold. You know, and then learning a lot about uh, prison reform and how inmates really are the forgotten population and nobody really cares and how, again, corrections are the new psych hospitals. Um, and so I started from there because I was never bored and I needed to not be bored. I think that's like really important, you know, historically looking at it, but like deinstitutionalization was this monumental shift in the history of society. Right. Not just like mental health, but because it puts so many people out into the streets it puts so many people into jail. We've run into this issue now where like the jails are overpopulated. We have like the wait lists and stuff as well for the prisons. And like it's a mess. Right. And it's because these people who are in these hospitals forever need to go somewhere. They need to go somewhere. And I feel like nobody cares. <laughs> And nobody it, cared. Nobody cares. Nobody cares. So like, you know, you criminalize mental illness in a way, and I'm not excusing people for personal accountability and choices in their behaviors. That's not what I'm doing here. But I'm saying that if somebody is legitimately mentally ill, especially psychotic, or uh, I know trauma is a trendy term, but true trauma and PTSD and things of that nature, and they're engaging in substance abuse, and then they're doing things to support that habit, or they're trespassing or engaging in petty theft, and then they just end up, it's like, I don't think people realize how much of a cycle this is. I've had guys with 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 arrests, and none of them are particularly bad guys. They're not sex offenders or, or mass murderers or gangbangers. These are just guys who, this is how they live their life. They're ill. No, they're mentally ill, and nobody cares. And sometimes they tell me, the only time I get my meds is when I come to jail. It's, it's the old thing, like when I was, you know, back in residency and we're working in Richmond or Baltimore, it's people would come for three hots and a cot, right? They come for their three hot meals, their place to sleep and their medication because that that was, you know, I think one of the, I think the largest hospital systems is the jail mental health or the jail system, the forensic system. And this is where most of the medication ends up going to. It's a reality of the situation. It's absolutely reality. And it's like, you know, and then you have like a, a overworked, overburdened, underpaid case manager who tries to set them up with some kind of outpatient clinic. But, you know, there's no health insurance. There's no transportation. There's no uh, wherewithal on how to get there. I mean, it's just like, no, they're not going to go get their Risperdal at the outpatient mental health clinic. It's not going to happen. So see you in a month when you get arrested again. It's it's an unfortunate cycle. I think you know anybody who's been who's been in the mental health field on that side of it like knows that they know that these people unfortunately are people who fall through the cracks and they're only getting their care through jail or through the hospital system. So it's so sad, it's, and I don't see it changing at all. No, it's it's something unfortunate. These people are going to be suffering. Yeah, I think for for our whole lifetime. Agreed. Pivoting a bit, um, there's. The words psychopathy and sociopathy, and what's the difference between them? Aren't they the same thing? I love you for asking this question because this is one of my biggest pet peeves. I have to like namaste before I answer this. Okay, so sociopathy is not a thing. It's not a thing. 
The clinical research for a long time now has used the words psychopath and psychopathy. But let me explain so people understand where the term sociopathy or sociopath came from. So way back when, um, they were trying to separate psychopathy from psychosis. And so, because those are so similar, obviously. So they started to use the word sociopath. That's one of the reasons the word sociopath exists. Another reason is because there used to be um, this theory that either you were a born psychopath or a made psychopath. And if you were born that way, you were a psychopath. And if you were made that way as a product of your environment, you were a sociopath. But the research and the more recent research really doesn't show that that's the case. It's, it's as you know, it's very complicated. It's a biopsychosocial model with predispositions and, and things like that for somebody to be a full-blown psychopath. So the term sociopath is really outdated and it's not used at all in the clinical literature. And if I watch a true crime show and somebody says sociopath, um, the level of rage inside me is not normal. It's, it's, it's not okay. Yeah, I, and I think, thank you for clarifying that even for myself, because even, you know, you know, it's been a while since I've done some forensic work, um, but like, you know, we, 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 it's become such a part of our everyday language, right? Like sociopath and was it, um, who was it? Olivia Rodrigo had that song, right? Good for you, where she goes, you know, goddamn psych or use like a something sociopath, right? And there was all this kind of like blowback about, oh my God, this is like about, it's not it's we're not standing up for people with antisocial personality disorder and it's like well we're not even <laughs> yeah i'm seeing the head, head go back like um you know it's not even there sociopath isn't even really a word and then antisocial personality disorder is not the connection and then all these things that go on from there yeah there's there you know I'm, I only have Instagram and YouTube. I sh my, my friends and colleagues have been telling me to get on Twitter and TikTok, and I'm so resistant because I, um, I get deeply, deeply annoyed at the misinformation out there. <laughs> Very annoyed. And so I'm like, why would I annoy myself more with more platforms? Um, I'll probably do it at some point and, and, and stop being resistant. But um, yeah, the bad, the downside of social media is the misinformation out there and uh psychopathy sociopathy antisocial personality disorder um not not the same thing not not the same not at all coming coming off of that like i think you know is this it's the interesting kind of progression of of that conversation is nature versus nurture are you a product of genetics are you born this way or are you made this way and then kind of the connection with antisocial personality disorder narcissism personality disorders as a whole talk to us a, a bit about that because i think that's one of the more interesting kind of topics within the field as a whole i agree i think personality disorders are kind of fascinating because sometimes you meet somebody who actually meets criteria for narcissistic personality disorder and you meet their family and there's no kind of indication that this person would have turned out to be an egomaniac. So you have to wonder, is there a narcissism gene? Is it learned behavior? And I think the re there's no easy answer. There's no clear cut answer. I think everybody has to be individualized. That's the thing. People lump everyone together. Same with antisocial personality disorder. I've seen some juveniles who are 16, 17 meet criteria for ASPD, but yet you look back at their history and it's like, okay, mother was addicted to crack cocaine, father was in prison, they grew up in a violent household, they have a history of abuse, they watched people get shot in the neighborhood, they barely had any food to feed themselves, their school was overcrowded, so it's like, oh, of course they ended up in juvie. Of course, of course they did. That's very different than somebody who kind of was born with, you know, uh, I don't know, uh, this is more your area than mine, but some kind of compromised frontal lobe and, and no type of remorse and empathy. So they might exhibit the same behaviors, but that doesn't mean that, you know, ASPD in them presents the same way or that the root cause or the etiology is the same. And I think that's where we go kind of awry, where we just, I'm, I love the DSM-5 TR, it's, it's flawed. I personally love the DSM-5 TR because I think it's a, 
quick and effective way, I digress, but quick and effective way for clinicians to um, talk to each other and just say, hey, look, heads up, this is the cluster of symptoms. But I don't, but it's very flawed in the sense that it doesn't individualize. So two people can have ASPD and, and have completely different biopsychosocial factors, and that's not talked about enough. And we don't have time. That's the other thing, we don't have time, you know? Especially that, in the prisons where it's just a factory. Yeah. I think that's super, super important that you're saying that, like, again, the DSM is not meant for layperson consumption. It's meant, it's meant for clinicians, exactly what you said, to communicate to each other. So that when I'm communicating with you or vice versa or with a therapist and I say, I have a person with autism spectrum disorder. Okay. I have an idea of what's going on with that person idea. I don't have the specifics, but I have a general idea of like, this is what's going on. And I have generalized anxiety disorder. Okay. I have an idea of what's happening right there. Antisocial personality disorder. I have an idea of what's going on. The specifics, the nuances are, that's where all the communication is. That's where the time is coming from. And that's where we learn about the actual person and the, the nuances again. Agreed. And I think it's uh, almost like, you know, I, I've never been to medical school. So if I put my hands on the, uh, what do you guys use? The PD, PD, PR, PD, physician death know. reference. Oh, physician that thing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if I try to open the physician death reference and uh, try to, try to uh, diagnose myself, I would be doing myself and my providers a huge disservice. I'm not trained in that. And so I think when lay people, you know, I've, I, I've had these, I've had these kids, these kids come to me and say, hi, I think I'm borderline. And I'm like, what, 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 what you, where did you get that? What do you mean? Well, I watched a, I don't know. I watched a TikTok and I'm, I'm borderline and it's, it's dangerous. And that's not the point of the DSM five TR. It's, it's, it's just not. Yeah, it is absolutely not at all. And I think kind of coming back when you were saying like looking at the product, creating that formulation of the person that's in front of you and again looking at them as an individual and then we slap a label on them again just for the sake of communication or for diagnosing or billing or whatever the hell it may be again it's 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 there for for that and it's not encompassing of what the person is and i'm sure you you know you've had it much more than i have i've had kids children who you have that kind of chill from being in the room from them right um, that that feeling, that gut feeling of like, oh, something just ain't right. Like I'm gonna see this kid on the news yeah. one day, and I'm gonna be afraid. And like anytime, like you know, we hear of situations that occur, like in the area, we're like, oh my god, I hope it's not one of my kids that I'm seeing. Like you have those patience, those vibes from people, and that's when I always talk about like, you know, there is that nature part, which is a pretty. There are some kids, there are some people who are. We're not good people out there. I agree. And I think people don't understand that. And that's why one of my specialties is, is psychopathy because, you know, as much as I am pro mental health and pro prison reform and pro treatment, uh, I've seen, I've seen some evil. I've seen some evil that th there is no DSM disorder for this. It's, it's, it's something, there's some, some kind of lack of empathy and lack of remorse and it's, I don't know if it's neurological. I don't know if they were born that way. We may never know or not know for a while. And it's just, uh, I, I don't know what to call this, but it's not good. And, and I've even had some inmates tell me, don't ever let me out. I'll do it again. And I'm like, sir, I respect your honesty because at least I can work with that. Yeah. And, and I think that's something that like people don't, again, realize like you've talked with countless people i'm sure hundreds thousands of people who have killed other people you know i've sat with people who've you know murdered their family members um it's part of part of the field and it's it's interesting it's terrifying it's everything all at once because you're like i'm sitting down having a conversation with this person meanwhile they've done these horrific horrific crimes against humanity and don't have any you know i wouldn't have anything to do with them on a regular basis, but this is what I'm doing. Yeah. And we don't, you know, we don't get to really pick and choose, you know, oh, I just want to work with the, you know, the poor kid who has panic disorder. It's not how it works. You know, we have to w work with the whole gamut. And so 
psychopathy also what people are not realizing and there's a whole body of research on this is that psychopathy is not just like your Ted Bundy's and your Jeffrey Dahmer's there's psychopathy that kind of white collar criminals where they go on the pro, they, they engage in pro-social behaviors but they still have that lack of empathy and remorse so you see them in powerful political positions or CEO positions so they might not be in prison. They might be walking around us, but that doesn't mean that they're not dangerous. And that's fascinating to me too, because I don't think people realize that. They just think Jeffrey Dahmer, Ted Bundy, and they're, lo they're locked up or they've been executed and everything's fine. No, 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 it's not, it's not necessarily the case. I think, you know, without being super political, Go we've, for it. We've, we've seen that like, you know, people who are, Psychopath, psychopaths who have those skills it's served them well it served them extremely well and we've seen the damage that can occur to those things again it doesn't it's not the person who's just killing people who is getting caught and showing up on cnn all the time it's the people who are our neighbors these people are out there causing these you know quote-unquote microaggressions these quote-unquote lesser crimes it doesn't make them any less significant no, and they're in positions of power. So they have authoritative, you know, demeanors and they have, uh, they have the narcissistic component, the grandiosity, um, and they are very influential. And it's terrifying, really, because then you have the little people who don't know any better, who don't understand narcissism and psychopathy and kind of brainwashing, who are going gung-ho for people who really don't care about them at all voting against their own interests and uh i'll stop myself before i get canceled but uh you know it's it, it is it's very terrifying and it's scary and i think we need to talk a little bit more about how psychopathy can present in everyday society and not there not just in prison You've, we've talked about the or we've used the word narcissism narcissistic personality disorder all those things and we have this social media like obsession with this more recently talk to us a little bit about about that as a whole not necessarily like the social media obsession with it but more so the differences between like what is narcissism what is narcissistic personality disorder how do those kind of show up or develop so i have this thing on my ig where i do like a trendy term thursday and i always pick a trending term like gaslighting uh toxic codependent and I did one on narcissism because I was like, oh gosh, everybody's a narcissist. So first of all, per the DSM-5TR, the prevalence rate in community samples of narcissistic personality disorder is like 1.6%. It's really low. So this idea on social media that everybody's a narcissist is kind of pretty dangerous. So narcissism as a trait, and that's the other thing, I think there's narcissistic, of course, you know this, there's narcissistic personality disorder and then there's narcissistic traits. And those are very different. Narcissistic personality disorder, there is diagnostic criteria that has to be met for somebody to have that disorder. And according to the research, that's pretty damn rare. But then you can have people who have narcissistic traits. They can, have a, they can be compulsive liars. They can have an inflated sense of self. They can be an egomaniac. And, you know, I think people just think like, oh, my ex cheated on me, he's a narcissist. And it's like, no, he's an asshole, but he's, sorry, can I curse? Okay, he's an asshole, but he's, okay, awesome. He's an asshole, but he's not necessarily a narcissist, you know? And that term is getting thrown around way too much. Um, so I think all of us, especially living in America, have some, probably some narcissistic traits, some ego, uh, centric views and it's a me, 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 me world and it's about instant gratification and I want my needs met before anybody else's. So those are some kind of egomaniacal narcissistic traits, but that doesn't mean you have narcissistic personality disorder. That's the big difference. Which is huge, right? Because <laughs> huge, it's, it's, it's everything in reality, right? Is because we hear this again, all the time being tossed around. My dad is a narcissist and this is how he was and my mom was a narcissist and I come from a family of narcissists. I was like, well, probably not. Do they have narcissistic traits? Do they do some stuff that may be like, again, assholey? Sure. Yeah. But are they all narcissistic personality disorder? Probably not. Probably not. Uh, Probably same not. with trauma, but I digress. 
that's a, yes. With with being, uh, it was one of the questions that came out there was when you're working with people who are murderers, right? People who have killed people. Do you feel like your ability to work with them depends on the alleged crime? Or do you feel like that impacts how you can work with them? Are there anything in your mind that's like, a, I can't do this. I, I can't work with this person. Yes. So I've worked with a lot of murderers and quite a few serial killers, pedophiles, rapists, and I would, I'm human, right? So I'd be lying if I said, oh no, I look at everybody as a human and I give them a blank slate. That's bullshit. That's I, any clinician who says that is lying. Uh, of course, I take their crime into consideration, not just because I want to check my, you know, countertransference and make sure that I'm being objective, but also because their crime usually is data into their clinical picture and people who commit murder, commit murder for a multitude of reasons. I had one patient who only served three years for committing murder because he killed his daughter's rapist. And the jury saw it fit to say, okay, you took a life, you're gonna do some time, but you're not gonna do life, you're gonna do three years. And he was you know, an upstanding citizen, never had anything as a parking ticket, he a, was a well-to-do person in society, but he went and murdered the person who raped his daughter. And it was, I guess the jury was kind of like, yeah, I get it. So that guy is very different from somebody who's, you know, being a predator, a night stalker, and is just getting enjoyment or even sexual gratification, dare I go that far, of, from murder. So again, it's important to individualize and, and see, okay, you're a murderer, but what? What happened? What, you know, and, and I think that understanding the crime is really part of the clinical picture and helping to assess and treat the patient. So there's that. And with sex offenders, um, not my favorite population to work with, difficult to work with. I think the older I get and the more clinical experience I have, the more I'm able to separate the two and compartmentalize. In my early 20s, I was would go home and lose sleep and, oh, I hate that guy and I can't work with him. But once you realize, as you know, I think I'm sure you've experienced this. Once you realize that you're doing yourself and your patient a disservice by internalizing all that stuff because you're not being objective, you slowly learn how to detach. Not in a not in a I don't care way, but in a clinically appropriate way. Um, the the one type of inmates I can't work with are animal abusers. So I was working at a prison in uh, New York, actually Sing Sing Correctional Facility, and I was about 27 years old or something. And some guy came in with horrific, uh, I, I love animals, horrific crimes against animals. And I went to my supervisor and I said, yeah, I can't do this. And he was like, you work with serial killers and pedophiles and gangbangers and drug dealers and you can't work with this guy? And I was like, no, no, I, I, I can't. Please put him on somebody else's caseload. I think it's smart to know your limits, know your limits and know where, where you can and you can't, because I knew that I was not going to be objective or helpful to this guy. I wasn't. So that's and I think, you yeah, know, I think that's really important also that, you know, for anybody who's a clinician who's training, like to understand that part of nothing else, like know what your limits are. You know, if there's something that you say that like, hey, this is going to impact my ability to take care of my patient, my client, tap out, get out of it right now. So, you know, people may laugh and say, oh my God, you could deal with these people, but not the people cruelty to animals. That's understandable. Everybody's got their thing. That's like, no, 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 I can't, I can't do this. This is too much for me. Yeah. And I think it's, it's like you said, it's not just about the clinician. It's about the patient. I've had people who got hired at the prison who walked in, took one look around and said, I can't do this and left. And I thought that's fine. You know, you gave it a fair shot and you were honest that you realized I can't do this. This is not for me. And then you left rather than, you know, doing damage, doing damage to people. I respect that more than somebody who's pretending that it's all good and, and it's not. Yeah, we had I, I always going to have like this memory from working at the VA, not the VA, but like in, yeah, in residency, being at the VA, having like one older guy who turned out to be like, you know, he abused his children, right? Sexually abused his children and you know, just came out to light. And then the doc who the attending who I was working with was like, you got to take over for this. Like, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I can't be part of this. Like, you know, psychiatric medications, we know that they're super powerful. 
we can use them to harm people. He was like, I can't objectively take care of this person. Like, you got to check me with this. Like, and I'm just like a lowly resident being like, you're supposed to teach me this stuff. But (laughs) that's how it it goes. And I think that's, again, like just knowing your limits is, is really, really important. Absolutely. Absolutely. When we when we think of psychopaths, we think of them primarily as men, right? And we have this picture of them as as men. But women are psychopaths too, right? They can be, yes. The prevalence rate, I don't have the numbers in front of me, the prevalence rate for women is much lower, which is interesting because I wonder why. Is that is that a nature versus nurture thing? I don't know. Um, the prevalence rate is lower, but there are some female psychopaths out there for sure. Uh, do you remember Eileen Wernos? She, she was the, um, Charlize Theron played her in Monster. She was a prostitute and she murdered all the Johns. Uh, apparently there was psychopathy testing. That's another thing. I do psychopathy testing. That is a thing. Psychopathy testing was done on her and she was a psychopath. So short answer yes there are female psychopaths out there and the prevalence rate is lower but i don't think we really know why or at least i don't know why let me stop yeah we'll go with that yeah we'll go with that um staying on the gender thing for a bit i know you had said your first experience as a patient client when you were young was with a female psychologist and then you had this lecturer who was another female psychologist in there and you're a female psychologist. What's that like in regards to maybe how you view your people that you're working with and also maybe how they view you and maybe also maybe how people in your family, friends have been like, oh my God, what are you doing, Dr. Aji, in this field? Yes. Um, actually, my current psychiatrists and therapists are male, so now you have me thinking. Okay. Anyway, um, so... I think that, you know, um, there is still a lot of misogyny in the field. Um, I've experienced it a lot in the prisons where, for example, um, a male nurse will come in in scrubs and they'll refer to him as Dr. So-and-so and and I'll come in in scrubs and I'm Lena. And it's like, I, you know, I don't, I don't need the, the big ego, egomania title. I don't, I don't, whatever, but be fair across the board and just assuming that the guy in scrubs is a doctor and the girl in scrubs is probably a, a nurse or something, um, things like that. Or even when I testify, uh, when I do expert witness testimony, the, um, a lot of the lawyers will say Miss Haji, but if it's a male expert witness, it'll be Dr. So-and-so. So th- those are just you know little tidbits that you still kind of uh, go against. Um, but working in a prison, Um, I probably seen more penises than I care to admit. Uh, that's a thing. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a really thing, really big. I shouldn't say big. It's a thing. Okay. It's, it's a thing. I've seen plenty of, I've seen plenty of penis prison penises as well. Don't worry. It's not just you. Not just you. Oh, it's, you know, it's, I'm sure you've seen plenty of penises. So, and it varies from state to state because some states have very punitive measures and they will actually come in and charge the inmates with a sex offense. So there's a little bit more of a deterrence for them to engage in that behavior. In some states, they really don't care. I've even had correction officers when I complain and say like, hey, he pulled his shit out. Can you please go handle him? And what I mean by handle him, write him up and whatever. Um, they'll, they'll say to me, well, you chose to work here. And it's like, oh, Okay, would you say that to a guy? No, you wouldn't say that to a guy. So I chose to work in prison and help an underserved population. I didn't ask to be subjected to kind of sexual abuse. Uh, So you get a lot of that. Um, And I think, of course, you have to carry yourself a certain way and um, not take any bullshit. You really cannot take any bullshit. And I don't mean come in there and be like a angry kind of bitch mode, but you, you deliver respect and you deliver respect consistently Inmates pick up on that because people, you know, inmates, also, they're not a homogenous group. They're they're humans. So, but, you know, you lay down the law that I will not be disrespected. If you disrespect me or you pull out your penis, I'm writing you up. There's going to be a consequence. And once you lay down the law, they kind of know, okay, don't mess with, don't mess with Dr. Haji. And that's a process. You know, anytime you go into a new correctional facility, they're going to test you. But that's with everyone, male and female. But there is still a lot of misogyny in the field, for sure. 
for sure. I actually recently did a show on Tubi where I was like the expert forensic psychologist on this true crime documentary. And um, the producers, they found me on, I don't know, IG or YouTube or something. And they said, you know, we've been looking for a forensic psychologist, but every single forensic psychologist we found was an old white man. So we're really happy that we found you. And I was like, yes, let's do this. Yeah. And it's one of those things that like, you know, I'm, you know, I, I, I say like, I'm not an ugly guy, right? I'm a decent looking guy, right? And I've been like hit on and sexually harassed by patients plenty of times in my, in my, you know, 10 plus years of doing this. You're not an ugly looking person, right? You're a beautiful woman, right? And I'm sure that you're getting harassed constantly by people. Is this true or am I just seeing into this or not? So... Again, yes and no. First of all, when I go into a prison, I, I purposefully look homeless. Okay, There's no makeup. The hair is, there's no jewelry. There's no nothing. You want to look as homeless as possible. So people who go into prisons or correctional facilities with a ton of makeup and hair done and jewelry and revealing clothing, red flag, red, red flag. And if I'm supervising them, they're going home. So that's the first thing. Carry yourself appropriately because at the end of the day, you're surrounded by criminal men who have not seen a woman in a long time. So please, common sense, that's the first thing. Second thing, um, I think, uh, again, you know, if you treat them with respect and demand, not demand respect, but more command respect, and they know that if they disrespect you, you will not tolerate it, you will write them up, you will, um, there will be a consequence, you know, and I don't wanna, I don't wanna, send guys to the shoe or the hole or the box, but if it's, if it's necessary, it's necessary. And once you establish that pattern, you know, it, most inmates, and again, not a homogenous group, most inmates, you treat them with respect, they will treat you with respect. You know, you have your couple assholes and your few psychopaths and your antisocials who really just don't care. And those guys, you just kind of say, okay, this is how he is and he's not gonna change. I'm just gonna keep writing him up. Um, but most of them, they, they will treat me with respect. Um, and my female counterparts, you just have to learn how to earn it. You know, inmates are so big on respect. So you can't be big on me respecting you if you're not going to respect me. And I'll talk to them like that. I'll say that. Hey, dude, listen, not cool, man. I'm here to help you, but I'm not going to help you if you're going to be a dick. Pun yeah. intended. <laughs> I think, I think, yeah, the whole idea of, of respect earned is respect given. You know, that's super important again in the, in the, in the field, again, in anything, like even when I'm working with teen patients i'm like mm -hmm. i'm here i'm gonna respect you and, and talk about stuff whatever we need to talk about but make sure you're being like good to me and i'll be good to you as well the society as a whole you know we touch upon it like the netflix and the radio you know my my buddy he's the guy who got me into doing tiktoks and stuff um he started doing soccer tiktoks and then it became crime tiktok and then he became narrating true crime stories and he's making a career out of this now, right? He's super into this and he's make, amassing tens of thousands of followers. We know you turn on the TV, movies are all about this. We have the Dahmer thing on Netflix just recently came out. You know, what is the fascination with forensics, true crime, serial killers? How, how do we explain that people are so attracted to something that they should not be? You know, I don't have a good answer for that. I thought it was just me, and it's not, apparently, because these true crimes, they spit out, like, every single day. And I've been watching them. It, the, the amount of true crime that I watch is is unwell. I mean, it's it's not okay. I've embraced it. I've accepted it. I have a group chat with a bunch of forensic psychologists, there's about 10 of us, and you know, a, a true crime drops, and we're all, wh what episode are you on? What, what, what do you think? Are they borderline? Are they narcissistic? What's going on? Do you think it was bipolar? Do you think it was borderline? I, this is what we're doing. But I thought that that was just, just us because we're forensic freaks, but it's not just us, it's everybody. So the only thing I can think of is that we are fascinated with stuff that deviates from the norm um, and deviates from the norm in a way that um, it's kind of, you know, it used to be taboo, but it's not. And I think, if I'm honest, I think every single one of us as humans has a breaking point. I really believe that every single one of us under the right circumstances could 
maybe commit murder or at least severe assault given the right circumstances. And so when there are people who actually go out and do that, I think it's just fascinating. And it's so, all of them are so different. That's the other thing. I think it's, there's, there is a psychology and a psychiatry and a mental health component because why? Why would somebody do that? Remember Andrea Yates? Like she was found in GRI and she drowned all five of her kids because she was genuinely psychotic supposedly. Like how can we not try to figure out what the hell was going on there? Even people who aren't in mental health, that's crazy. That's deviates so far from the norm. You know, the mother, the maternal protector, your five children. So I just think, and, and it doesn't seem like the fascination is going anywhere. What do you, what do you think? Why do you think people are, are hooked on this? I, you know, it's, it's hard because I think, I think you're right in a way is that we are attracted to this stuff that we shouldn't be, right? This stuff that's, you know, been told to us that, that initial gut instinct when somebody says, don't do that. Right. Don't think about this. First thing you do is think about it and want to do it. Right. Like, don't eat the cake that's in the fridge. You're like, I want the cake that's in the fridge now all of a sudden. Right. And then, you know, there is that primal kind of feeling right there comes from, you know, we can go really kind of psychoanalytical and, you know, the, the death drive and the sex drive that's there of like, you know, destroying the world and, you know, sexual gratification and those primal instincts and like, there's a check that occurs for most of us, right? The majority of the people, like, there's a check that says, like, don't do this. Yeah. That's not cool. But then when somebody else does it, you're like, how did <laughs> it happen? What happened? Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Oh, man. It's, and, and again, like, you're right. It, there is, Netflix could just stop doing everything else and just do purely true crime. And they'd be still, they'd be fine. They'd be doing just fine. And every single true crime documentary I watched, and I'm sure since I started at age, what, 12, and I'm in my 40s, I'm sure, you know, I've probably watched thousands upon thousands. It never gets old for me. It, like, I have had friends do interventions and be like, you need to watch some comedy. And I'm like, no. (laughs) There's something always, there's something always, that's just, the appeal is just never ending. It's timeless, right? These people, you know, Jack the Ripper, right? He's yes. a person that we all know about, and that was, what, 100-plus-something years ago. Right. Live on forever. So with that a little bit, we'll, we'll take one of the questions, I think, was, well, I'll, I'll throw it out there. I don't think it was a real question, but who's your favorite serial killer, right? Everyone has, like, a favorite or their favorite psychopath. What is your favorite psychopath? My favorite psychopath is the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And the fact that I had an answer so quick is really concerning, but, yeah, it's Richard Ramirez. Yeah, it's concerning. Um, so there's a couple reasons I love Richard Ramirez. Because when I say love, I mean clinically love. Uh, let me clarify that before I get you know yelled at. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't, we don't, we don't love them, love them. Yes, we, yeah, thank we're you. drawn to them somehow. Right, or other. right. Disclaimer. So um, because he had, you know, mostly serial killers have a victim type. Like Ted Bundy had the the brunette girls with the the young brunette girls with the straight hair in the middle part, and then um, Jeffrey Dahmer had you know ethnic homosexual young men. Richard Ramirez, like nobody was safe. He killed children, men, women, elderly people, all ethnicities, all socioeconomic background, and that's why they couldn't catch him because he had like no MO and no typology in his victim. So I find that fascinating because what, if you didn't have a victim type, what was going on there? It was really just the kill and nobody was safe. And then he had other crimes. He had sexual crimes. I think there might've been some arson in there, some theft, some substance abuse. He was like a mess all across the board. And that to me is kind of fascinating because that's not your typical serial killer. So again, clinically, I find him to be absolutely fascinating because he doesn't make sense. He doesn't fit in the box. Jim Jones is mine. Really? Because I, there's something that is, you know, because was it before 9-11, Jonesville massacre was the greatest loss of American life at like a single moment. Um, Like the idea that you could, brainwash these people to voluntarily kill themselves to was it 900 people to drink you know the the whole phrase of drinking the kool-aid where that came from you know i could watch jim jones documentaries like 
all the time and all the time just be fascinated by it being like how did it get to this point how did these people get to this point Jim Jones is a good one. You know who else is a good one? Charles Manson, because he never killed anybody. He had people kill for him. And supposedly Charles Manson was a psychopath and psychotic. He was schizophrenic, supposedly, and high on psychopathy. So, like, can you imagine, like, the cult, the delusional, the were there auditory hallucinations, all, the paranoia, the all of that stuff? Plus the skelter, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so interesting. It's mm -hmm. it's really interesting to kind of again, from a clinical point of view, to right. look back and and learn and see what's there. Pivoting a bit now, we're, we're pivoting a little bit. We're going to go through some of the media media portrayals of like forensics in the world and what what you think of them as a forensic psychologist, someone who's in there. So the first one that I could really think of was Profiler and the old show on NBC that I like loved. I was like, oh my god, what is this show? This is great. What are your thoughts? I never saw a profiler. Um, Mindhunters. Oh, yeah, Mindhunters. Okay, Mind we'll Hunters. go to Mindhunters. Oh, the Mindhunters, yeah. So he was actually one of my professors. God, I No way. Him. Yeah, at John Jay for uh. a very brief time. Um, so he was obviously in the FBI. He was an FBI profiler. And this was when profiling was a really, really new science as per the show. Um, and I think that show is pretty accurate. That particular show, from what I understand, from having had him as a professor, that one is pretty accurate. The other one that is pretty accurate, funny enough, is um, Criminal Minds. Okay. I mean, super Hollywoodified. Yeah. You know, they're like in a jet with like, you know, they're like, I don't think FBI agents fly in a private jet from crime scene to crime scene. I don't think Probably that's not. A, probably, probably not. Probably not. So besides like the Hollywoodified stuff, apparently according to a profiler professor i had back when she said that the way that they hone in on the offender is pretty accurate um silence of the lambs classic uh i might have an ex-boyfriend who calls me clarice to this day um <laughs> which i take as a compliment silence of the lambs classic i think anthony hopkins played an absolutely brilliant psychopath but he also it was also hollywoodified you know, the, his demeanor, the kind of subdued flat affect and that kind of stuff. Um, so I think there are some good ones out there and there are some that are not so good. I can't think of too many off the top of my head, even though you'd think I would, since this is what I do all day. Um, are what's you, your are you, I, well, I was going to say, I, I love Mindhunters. I thought Mindhunters was gripping, 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 yeah. and I loved it. And I, I'm just like, I'm hoping that they, they bring it back for a third season. I know it's kind of in limbo, but I was like, this was, I could just sit down straight and just watch it. Zodiac. Zodiac is one of my all-time favorite movies. Um, and I know that's more journalists, and then there's some forensic guys that are in there. But Zodiac by David Fincher, who did Mindhunters, was, is one of my all-time favorites. Zodiac was good. Did you hate Joker as much as I hated Joker? I hated Joker. Okay, so I hated Joker. I hated Joker. Um, but I, I, I love the history of Joker. Like the old school Batman. Oh, yeah. I love Joker, the yeah. character. I yes. hate Joker, the movie. I hated I Joker, the, music, the movie as well. Although he, who was it, Christian Bale? He, uh, Joaquin Phoenix, yeah. Oh, Joaquin Phoenix. I love yeah. Joaquin Phoenix, and I thought he did a great job of playing some, I, I mean, he doesn't fall in a diagnostic box, really, but... I love old school Joker. Jack Nicholson, brilliant. Character Joker, brilliant. I didn't like Joker either. I couldn't wait for it to be over. Unpopular yeah. opinion. Nobody agreed with me. I, right? I agree with you. I thought it was one of the one of like the most terrible like mental yes. health fish movies that ever came out. It was like, oh, we have a guy who's got this childhood abuse, you know, that this this boilerplate kind of like background of childhood abuse and orphan he's on medications and then once he goes off the medications then he becomes this cold-blooded murderer and then that's what and an anarchist because it's like all he needed was the medications and that's the only thing that's keeping him from being an anarchist murderer no yeah you're right i forgot about all that and that's that's not how it works that's not that's not how unless unless he's you know uh pacified on large amounts of trazodone and sleeping i guess I didn't yeah. know. No, it was it was it was not not a big fan. I didn't like it either. We talk about 
people having all these, you know, 50, 60 minor offenses, right? One of the ones that's come up a lot more recently is drugs and drug paraphernalia and decriminalization. What are your thoughts as a forensic psychologist about decriminalization? I am pro decriminalization. I think that um, drugs is a, you know, the, we, we've been talking about the war on drugs for like 30 years and drugs is winning the war. <laughs> oh, it's it's the greatest failure in American history is the war on drugs. Yeah. That's what I, what I was saying. It's, it's, it's a joke. Um, I don't think there's enough uh, treatment out there. I've seen so many substance abusers criminalized end up through the criminal justice system. That being said, again, I don't think substance abuse should be an excuse for your behavior. Um, and as working with substance abusers is a difficult population because I'm very much of the opinion that um, you're not done until you're done. Nobody can force you to get sober. Nobody can force you to get sober. Um, I do like some of the harm reduction models. Uh, the research does not support that harm reduction models encourages substance abuse, contrary to what a lot of people say. You know, clean needles, uh, places to use safely. Um, I think that in conjunction with kind of motivational interviewing type interventions to ultimately get to abstinence is probably your best bet. But um, yeah, I think criminalizing, I, I mean, I remember 10 years ago before weed was legal all over the place, I had a 19 year old kid who got sentenced to 30 years for selling weed. 30 That's, years yes. for selling weed. And it's like, this kid's life is over. He's 19. Yeah. And I mean, granted, it was a large amount of weed and he had some juvenile priors, I get it. But they threw the book at him and I was like, what? I know rapists who have done one to three. What are you doing? So that to me is, is, I mean, it's horrific. We should be outraged at that stuff. Yeah, it is. I think, again, we've, we've lost generations of people, um, especially minority populations where yeah. we're just, it's, it's a way to kind of weed out, you know, communities and destroy the communities. But you know we don't want to we don't want to say these things out loud sometimes, right? Yeah, right. Uh, um, and along this line, do you feel like complex PTSD? Do you feel like undiagnosed ADHD, autism, neurodivergence? That these things are being criminalized in the youth of today or yesteryear? Yes and no. There's some evidence that um, untreated ADHD in childhood, and you probably know much more about this than me, but that undiagnosed ADHD in childhood has uh, a higher rate of the juvenile ending up in the criminal justice system, correct? So, um, yeah, and I'm, I'm, I don't know what what the research is on autism, although I do do ADHD and autism evaluations uh, part-time, and I thought I would not enjoy those, but I really do. Um, and so I think that, I mean, it's just, it boils down again to socioeconomic stuff. Uh, you know, you see these kids who have ADHD or autism or child onset bipolar. I know that's rare, but you know, just, they have mental illness, they have, signs of mental illness or even prodromal schizophrenia or whatever it is. And there's no, these poor impoverished kids, they don't stand a chance. It's literally the school to prison pipeline. That's a thing. I just did a video on that. That's an absolute thing. And it drives me nuts because I've been working a lot more with juvenile delinquents, not even a cool term, but juvenile delinquents uh, recently. And it's like, God, you just want to kind of say, scream and say, don't you understand this kid is depressed or he has, he's having panic attacks or he was sexually abused. Like we need to help him because he's going to end up being my adult patient in the prison. It's going to happen. You can literally see the trajectory. And because I've been in this field long enough, I've seen it in real time. I've seen it in real time. The kid had ADHD. He was never given any kind of meds or any kind of, you know, school modifications. He ends up acting out. He ends up in the juvenile criminal justice system. And then five years later, I see him in the adult criminal justice system. And it's like, for fuck's sake, could we not have done something or anything? Yeah. I think, you know, 
talking of movies, like Waiting for Superman was one of the most eye-opening movies I ever saw during my life. And again, it was talking about the school to prison. Check it out if you haven't seen it, Waiting for Superman. Uh, it's about the school to prison pipeline, about the education system in America. You know, part of my rotations when I was doing my fellowship in child psychiatry in Baltimore City was going into, into the schools of Baltimore City and being the psychiatrist over there. And I think for all these people who are out there in the world being critical of the school system and communities and so-and-so, quote-unquote, is like the ghetto, blah, 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 they need to spend a day in the schools and see what the schools are like. Because I'm, you know, I'm 6'4", 200-plus pound guy. Like, I would go into some of these schools and I'd be like, I'm scared i'm terrified walking around <laughs> and, and it's just like i'm like what is going on over here but like people don't realize like how bad some of these schools are versus like i went to a private school you know and i was like i couldn't even imagine being in a situation or, or like being anywhere how i could be anywhere else if i was from that school i couldn't agree first of all they don't pay teachers enough especially teachers in urban schools i have a friend who is a principal at an urban school here in florida uh, Florida is already a red flag. Um, but he used to tell me that, uh, so part of his job was managing the, the, the budget and, uh, he advocated for mental health and they gave him ready for this. This was a, a whole entire middle school. They gave him $1,200 a year for their mental health budget. Oh my God. <laughs> so he was like, I don't, I don't, I was like, I, I was like, well, I, that doesn't even cover one evaluation. I, I, it doesn't even cover, I don't know, maybe three sessions of group therapy. So he was asking me for help. Like, how do I spend this $1,200? I was like, I don't, I don't know. I, I really, even an unlicensed young green therapist could maybe do, like, what are you supposed to do? It? Like, I couldn't come up with anything. $1,200 for a whole year for a whole school was their mental health budget. I feel like I spent $1,200 a year on refreshments for my waiting room in my office. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, uh, <sighs> I don't even, you know, I, that doesn't even cover one evaluation, one, one, you know, comprehensive yeah. neuropsychological evaluation. So I don't, yeah. I don't know what they were, and they, they were like here. So I think he had a social worker come in and talk to kids three times. What is that? It's it's nothing. It's like not even a bandaid, right? It's just, just no. Like, I, I, it's, I would rather you give me gave him zero. Yeah. Whew. On that note, we'll talk on the we'll, we'll wrap up our conversation. We were respective of everybody's time, but how you know we we deal with this shit, right? Um, we we have this tough job and tough population, tough stuff. End of the day. How do you take care of yourself? How do you decompress yourself? How do you kind of get back to like living your life? Um, so for me, exercise is huge. I've always been kind of uh, engaged in some form of athleticism through, throughout my life. Exercise for me is, um, and I realize you're a psychiatrist, but exercise for me is my Prozac. Um, hey, I, I, I'm with you on that. Okay. I, I, I'm one of those people that is very much like, if you can get up and exercise, like that's part of the treatment plan. Don't worry. Yeah. yeah, it's totally part of the treatment. Exercise for me is huge. Um, I tend to work probably too much. And so sometimes I end up isolating cause I just sit in my house and type reports all day. So I think that socializing is huge. I have good friends in my life that will say, get out. And I'm like, no, I have to finish this report. And they're like, I, you're not listening. Get out. Come, let's have lunch. Let's have dinner. That's huge. Um, another thing I realized is when I started my private practice, I was really, um, practicing in a bubble, in a vacuum. And thankfully I had some forensic psych friends who were like, no, 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 you have to consult. You know, we should never stop learning. And I agree with that, but always consult. And so that's one of the good things about social media is I've met some awesome forensic psychologists on there. And so now we, we send each other articles and can you review this report for me? Uh, de-identified of course, can you do, you know, and so consulting people who understand who work in mental health, who, you know, and then having friends who don't work in mental health that are completely outside of mental health. Um, of course, you know, spending time with family. I also do meditate. I love meditation because I'm a high energy work under pressure 
prison maniac. So meditation has been good for me. And I also don't advocate this, but I ride a motorcycle in uh, my free time. Uh, my parents were never happy with that, but uh, I do ride a motorcycle. So just little things that have nothing to do with mental health that have nothing, you know, other than maybe exercise. I mean, they all kind of have something to do with mental health, but uh, good sleep. Good sleep yes. for me is huge, huge. I, I, I need my sleep. I've always needed my sleep. There's, there's nothing wrong with getting some sleep. So, yeah. well, Dr. Ajia, how can we follow along with you and your journey and, and learn more about you as we wrap up? Um, so my website is rise, R I S E rise, psychological.com. I have some cool stuff on there, some podcast TV show and some merch and some, uh, what else? Do I, oh, I have some webinars. I have some webinars and I can, if people, um, contact me, I can give them a discount code, especially students, uh, webinars on psychopathy and malingering. Uh, and then on IG, same thing, rise underscore psychological underscore services. And my YouTube channel is the same, Rise Psychological Services. So it's always Rise Psychological Services. I, I would like to get on TikTok because I do see your Jordan TikToks. My really good friend, Dr. Mac, who you should talk to. She's awesome. Revealing the Ivory Tower podcast. Um, she's always sending me your Jordans and I do love Jordans. So that's how I found you. Thank you for that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to search my Jordans. You, you want to prove. She, she's in the queue. Dr. Mac is in the queue. So we'll get she's, her. We'll get her eventually. She's awesome. Actually, she's doing a lot of good stuff on um, the kind of emotional abuse and overworking of medical residents. And she's uh, doing a lot of research on that. So that's pretty interesting because she worked in the medical field. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Rise Psychological Services all over the place. And uh, that's about it. Well, any parting words, Dr. Haji, or anything that you want to share with the peeps no only that i really really adore your content and um the combination between um you know you have a very mild demeanor and yet you don't take any bullshit and uh, the sneakers i really appreciate it i've learned actually quite a bit on adhd from you so but i still need a video on um non-stimulant adhd oh, oh i need damn it. i yeah, do owe I you that. i, need I do that. owe you one i'll get you to worry okay cool well Dr. Linaja, thank you so much for your time. I love the conversation. It was great to be able to do this. I'm sure people are going to eat this up because there is so much, there's so much hunger for this. So, Thank you for having me. You're awesome.